Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible, we're going to be putting the verses up on the screen. But this weekend, as I said last week, we're going to see what Jesus said about lust, which I think is a sin that we have a tendency just to lock up in the vault of our life. It's very personal. It's very private. We don't share it with other people. We just kind of lock it up there. And let me just begin by giving you a couple of definitions of lust. First of all, Webster's is a strong feeling of sexual desire, a strong desire for something. Or, this one's a little better as, as to what we're going to talk about this weekend, lust, a mismanaged, mishandled, or misdirected sexual desire or fantasy. Let me say that again. Mismanaged, mishandled, or misdirected sexual desire or fantasy. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember that Donnie talked about temptation. And uh, although he said, you know, temptation isn't a sin, we're all going to be tempted. How we deal with that temptation can determine or not, whether or not it's going to turn into a sin. So I just want to show you for a second as we get started, how temptation, which isn't a sin, can turn into lust, which is a sin. Understand, temptation always begins with a distraction. There's something that catches your attention. So there's a distraction, and if it's left unchecked, it will segue into an attraction. Now, let me just say this. An attraction can occur in a moment. I mean, maybe you notice somebody at the pool you've never seen before, or maybe you see someone at the beach, or maybe you see someone at the gym, or maybe there's a new person working uh, in the office and you notice her. I mean, it could be Target, it could be Big Lots. It doesn't really matter where it is. You see someone and you're attracted to them. Now, let me just say something. It's not a sin to be attracted to someone. This is what Billy Graham said. It's not the first look that gets you in trouble. It's the second and the third and the fourth that messes you up. And that's true. I mean, we are going to be attracted to people. Laura and I were walking through Times Square, and there's a big old billboard about 50 feet high of some hot guy in his underwear, you know, advertising, trying to sell his underwear, not his underwear, but the brand that he's wearing, right? And I noticed Laura looking, you know, and she, I, I said, hey, I see you checking that guy out. And she says, honey, I'm married. I am not dead. See, that's what I'm saying, right? We're Christians. We're not dead. We're going to be attracted. The problem is when it doesn't stop at attraction. Because if it doesn't stop at attraction, if it's left unchecked, what happens is it shifts slowly, it morphs into infatuation, and then if it's left unchecked, if you don't do something about it, it is going to turn into lust. Now, it's easy for us to sit in church on the weekend and pretend that we don't struggle with lust, because as I said, it's very personal, it's a very vulnerable area, but the truth is, we all struggle with it. And it's just like we heard in the Journey song. We live in a culture, we live in a society, we live in a world that says it's okay. In fact, any way you want it, that's the way you need it. That's the way you should have it. We live in a world that says if it works for you, who are we to judge? You only go around once in life. If that's what scratches your itch, go for it. We're not going to judge you. You do whatever you want to do. But you got to understand that Jesus' teaching on this issue brings us back to the fact that we need to acknowledge this truth, that we do struggle with the topic of lust. We struggle with the sin of lust. And we have to be honest. We have to acknowledge that truth to ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves. And then we have to acknowledge that truth to God. Because what did Jesus say in John chapter 8, verse 32? He says, when you realize what the truth is, that's what will set you free. And if we can acknowledge that we lock it up in the vault of our life and we accept it and we tolerate it, we're one step closer to opening the vault and moving it once and for all. So let's see how we can open up the vault this weekend. Clean lust out of our life. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, as he's delivering this message, Jesus makes a statement to his Jewish audience that they were very, very familiar with. This is what he says in verse 27, Matthew chapter 5. You shall not commit adultery. 
Now, if you know the Ten Commandments, you know that that is the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And it was familiar to this Jewish audience because from childhood on, see, the, Jewish, the Jews had the Ten Commandments just basically drilled into their heads every day. So they clearly understood, hey, we're not supposed to commit adultery. But it's interesting, Jesus takes it a step further in verse 28, and he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus isn't saying here that it's wrong to look at someone and find them attractive. That's just part of being human. He's saying that when we cross that line from admiration to lust, you're just as guilty as if you were to hook up with that person at the no-tell motel, okay? But let me make one thing very, very clear. Jesus is not saying if you've lusted in your heart, well, you might as well go ahead and follow through with it physically. And believe it or not, I've actually had people in my office that have, have used that logic. Well, you know what? I was already there in my heart, and Jesus said I was already guilty, guilty as charged. I figured I might as well just follow through with it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that one is as bad as the other. In fact, adultery includes everything that's wrong with lusting in the heart, plus so much more. It includes deceit, betrayal, damage to the family, deep hurt to a spouse. I mean, just ask anybody has been there. Jesus is simply saying here, if you think that you are sexually pure because you have never committed adultery, you need to think again. It runs much deeper than that. And I'm sure this audience that was listening to Jesus that day must have been thinking, wasn't you shall not commit adultery? Wasn't that enough? Well, see, not if you're trying to get to the heart of the issue. Not if you're trying to break into the vault so you can open the vault and get it out. See, Jesus wanted his audience to know that long before the act of adultery takes place in bed, it's already taken place in the head. In other words, the seed of lust has already been planted in the heart. That's what Jesus wanted to get across. And then he continues in verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Notice that little phrase there, causes you to stumble. It's the Greek word, skatalizo. We get our English word scandal from it. It could be if it leads you into sin, if it causes you to sin. And so Jesus is saying this, if your eye leads you into sin, if your eye causes you to sin, get a sharp knife, gouge it out, put it in a hefty bag, and set it out by the curb. If your hand leads you into sin, Get a sharp knife, cut it off, put it in a hefty bag, set it out by the curb. Now, let me be really clear here. That's what it sounds like Jesus is saying. Jesus is not recommending self-mutilation as a form of sin management. That's not what he's saying here. What he's doing here, and understand he's talking to this Jewish crowd, and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees would have been there. He is showing the absurdity of what the scribes and the Pharisees taught that it took to be righteous. See, they taught that the law was satisfied as long as you just avoided looking at someone and being attracted to them. In other words, their thinking is they concluded, hey, if looking at a woman causes you to sin, just don't look at a woman. And understand, the Pharisees of the first century, the scribes and Pharisees, they took this very, very seriously. In fact, there was a group of Pharisees in the first century when Jesus was on the earth, and they were known as the bruised and bleeding ones. 
And the reason they were referred to as the bruised and bleeding ones was because when they went out in public, they stared straight at the ground. They didn't look to the right, to the left. They didn't look ahead. They always stared at the ground. So they were constantly bumping into walls and camels and all kinds of things. And so they were known as the bruised and bleeding ones. They say they took this very, very seriously. Jesus comes along and he says, with some humor, by the way, Jesus had a lot of humor if you really read his teaching. But he says with some humor, if that's what it takes to be righteous, if that's what it takes to be obedient to God, why not just go all the way? I mean, if your eye's the problem, cut it out. If your hand's the problem, cut it off. What was his point? What was Jesus trying to say? His point was that your eyes aren't really the problem. Your hand's not really the problem. Jesus is saying, listen, if your eye causes you to sin, but let's be honest, it's not your eye that causes you to sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus wanted to get, the problem is your heart. The problem is your thoughts, your desires, your intentions. See, Solomon talked about this in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. He said this, do not lust in your, what, heart. In other words, he wants to get to the root of the issue. So understand, the problem really isn't the internet. The problem isn't TV. The problem isn't Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Yes, man, I know it came out this week. The problem isn't that women like to show up at the pool in bikinis. That's not the problem. It is a heart problem. In fact, Solomon adds this in chapter 7, verse 24, Proverbs. He says, now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart, there it is again, do not let your heart turn to her ways. Now, this is in the context where he's talking about the adulterous woman trying to seduce you. So he says, do not let your heart turn to her ways. And then he says something interesting, or stray into her past. See, Solomon just knew what we know. Nobody just wakes up one morning and decides, you know what, today I think I'll commit adultery. See, Solomon says it doesn't work that way. There's a path, there's a process that leads to it, and his advice is pretty clear. Don't start the process. Don't go down the path. Don't allow the seed of lust to be planted in your heart. You've got to guard your heart. In other words, stay out of the section of Barnes & Noble that you shouldn't be in. Stay off the internet sites you shouldn't be on. Stay out of the strip clubs that you know you have no business being in. Don't allow lust to take root in your life. You've got to guard your heart. So how do we do that? How do we guard our hearts? How do we resist the lure of lust? Because basically what Jesus is telling us here, if you can stop it at lust, you never have to worry about committing adultery. If you can stop it at lust, you never have to worry about stumbling into sexual immorality. Well, I want to give you five things that right now you can implement in your life that can keep lust in check, can get it out of your life and keep it out of your life. I've left a lot of time for application this weekend. In fact, these five things that I'm going to share with you, they will go a long way toward affair-proofing your marriage. And I would recommend of all the weekends, and I don't usually do this because usually what I have to say is not that profound, but I, I think this is probably a good weekend that you jot down some notes. So what do we do? First of all, and I don't think I've ever called our church to do this. But what do you say we make a commitment to keep God's standard when it comes to sex? What if we decided God's standard is the standard that we're going to live by? Now, here's the big question. Well, what is God's standard, right? Because we all have a different opinion, and we typically shape it and morph it to fit our situation, right? But Paul helps us. He writes this to the church in Thessalonica. We now have it in our Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. 
He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And this word sanctified, it's a big churchy religious term, but it just means set apart. For example, if you, if you laid out your clothes last night before you came to church this morning, you set those clothes apart for you to wear today. In, in a biblical term, those clothes are sanctified. They've been set apart. So Paul tells us right away that as Christians, because he's writing to Christians, that God has set us apart for something. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart. Here's what you should be set apart. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. And in case we don't understand it, he gives us a contrast. He says, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. So Paul says, listen, God has called you out. God has set you apart to live a different kind of life. Don't be like those pagans who just continually go after and follow their passionate lust. By the way, let me just say this. God created sex. I mean, it's kind of weird to think about it, but sometime in eternity past, God was like, wow. I have the coolest idea, right? And so God, God came up with this idea. But this is what you got to understand. And this is where it gets a little sticky, and this is where uh, you start writing your emails. Uh, God created sex to be for a husband and a wife in a committed marriage relationship. That's it. When God came up with the idea of sex, he created sex to be for a husband and a wife in a committed marriage relationship. Understand, anything outside of that, anything outside of a husband and wife in a committed marriage relationship, that would fall into the category of sexual immorality. Now, I say that because, see, there's a lot of people that used to say, you know, when Jesus was on this earth, he didn't say anything about fornicating. He didn't say anything about sleeping together before you get married. He didn't say about anything about homosexuality. Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. Sure he did. Every time Jesus used the word sexual immorality, Jesus was saying anything outside the marriage of a husband and wife, a committed marriage, it is sexual immorality. So according to God, marriage between a husband and wife, it is the only context where sexual intimacy can be safely expressed. Because where there is this ultimate expression of physical intimacy, but there's not this permanent commitment between a husband and a wife. See, God knew us because he created us. Remember what I said last weekend? He knows that we're just dust. He knows how we're wired. He knows that any expression of physical intimacy where there's no permanent commitment between a husband and wife, somebody's going to get hurt. So we need to make a commitment that we're going to keep God's standard when it comes to sex. By the way, let me just say, we need to make this commitment before we get into a situation where we're tempted to disobey God. Because I'll just tell you, college kids, high school kids, young people, if you wait until the heat of the moment, it'll be too late. See, high school is if you wait until you're on a date and all of a sudden the window's getting all steamed up, they decide, mm, I wonder what kind of decision I want to make about sexual immorality and sexual practices in my life. Too late. If you're in your girlfriend's house, a single girl's house, and you're in her apartment, you guys are having a Netflix date, and all of a sudden it starts getting steamy, it's too late to make that decision. You're not going to make the right decision then. Laura and I have been married 38 years ago, but we made the commitment growing up that we were going to save ourselves for marriage. Well, she was, she was 18, I was 21 when we were getting married, and uh, we had done a really good job. And you know it helped that she lived in California, and I was in North Carolina, that helped a whole lot. 
In fact, I met Laura in January, asked her to marry me in March, and then from May to when we got married December 23rd, we only saw each other twice during that time period. I had things to do here, she had things to do there, right? But I did fly back out the week before the wedding, staying in her house with her and her parents, and we learned early on, if we're going to make it these last few days until we get married, if her parents leave the house, we have to leave the house. It's kind of awkward because my mother-in-law is sitting here, but... She's probably asleep by now, so we're okay. Okay. So Laura and I just decided, no, she's awake. Uh, Laura and I just decided that if, if, if mom and dad left the house, we go to the mall, we take a walk, we go to the park. But we knew if we were going to com- keep our commitment to God, we had to make that decision ahead of time. I promise you, I promise you this, the pressure to disobey God's standard is so intense in our society that if you don't make your decision ahead of time that I'm going to do sexuality God's way, it is not going to happen. So what do you say we all decide, and this would be, this would be radical in the culture we live in. What if we all decided I am not going to allow disobedience in the area of my sexuality to become a barrier, a wall between me and my relationship with God? I'm gonna keep God's standard And God's standard is a husband and wife in a committed marriage relationship. Do you know what that means? That means if you're not married, the standard God has called you to is celibacy until you get married. It's purity. You don't hear that much anymore. Sounds old school. But you know what? If I got up one week and said, you know what? I've decided that greed is just not practical in the culture we live in, greed no longer is going to be wrong. And pride, you know, pride's just not practical anymore. I mean, we are proud people. We're proud Americans. So from here on out, we're not going to consider pride a sin. You guys would go crazy. But when I talk about something like this, and you're like, well, you know, times change. Yeah, times change, but God is immutable. He's everlasting. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. See, culture says any way you want it, That's the way you need it. God says, that's fine. If it's between a husband and wife in a committed marriage relationship. We need to make that decision. We need to make, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to live by his spirit day by day. Sometimes I'm going to slip up. But when I do, you know what? I'm going to get back up. I'm going to cling right back to God. We need to make that commitment. Now, and we need to reaffirm it on a regular basis. And I know what some of you are thinking. Mike, that ship's already sailed. That bell's already rung. I don't know how you unring that bell. You can't, but you can do this. You can draw the line in the sand and say, from here on out, I'm doing it God's way. I'm telling you, God loves to hear those kind of things. It's never too late to start doing what's right. Never too late. Second, think about what you look at. We need to think about the things we watch, read, we focus on, and if what passes through our eye gate fans the flames of lust in our heart, we need to get rid of it. Man, it may mean you have to get rid of HBO. Cancel your subscription to Sports Illustrated because you know what's coming. It may mean that you can't take your business clients to certain places. It may mean that you have to let your wife know where you go on the internet. She may have to check your history every once in a while. And I know what you ladies are thinking. You, you tell them, Mike, to do you what those low-life men, bunch of pigs, you know, dogs. Probably true, but ladies, you're hypocrites. 
So, so, so we can be, you know. I read just this week that the new Darker Shades of Grey movie is approaching $100 million. You know, world, they can do whatever they want to. What bothers me is the Barna Research Group did some research, and this is the conclusion they came. There is no difference between the percentage of Christians who have read Fifty Shades of Grey and the percentage of all Americans who have read the book, which is commonly described as, he calls it, mommy porn. See, ladies. So you can't go see Magic Mike and say, well, I only went for the dancing. Really? <laughs> really? Really? I've heard of girlfriends all getting together and goes, it's, it's for the dancing. We heard the, that's, see, that's guys going to Hooters for the wings, right? Right? <laughs> Playboy for the articles. You don't buy it when we said, we don't buy it when you say it either. So let's be really careful. Think about what you look at. Guard your heart. Here's the third one. Identify the times of vulnerability in your life. Maybe when you're exhausted. Maybe when you're having some marital tension, you're like, I'll show them. I'll show them what I'll do. Right? Maybe while you're traveling. Or maybe it's when things are going great and you just let your guard down a little bit. And that was the case with David. I mean, riding a string of successes, it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, that David made a tragic choice in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. In other words, when David should have been away at war, he made this calculated decision to stay home. Now, I want to say this in David's defense. I don't think he had any plans whatsoever that included Bathsheba. But verse 2 tells us one evening David got up from his bed. Maybe he's just suffering from insomnia. He walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So he sees Bathsheba and he thinks, wow, she's attractive. But understand, in that moment, David is very, very vulnerable. No one knew he was there. Even if they had, they probably would have thought nothing of it. And in just a brief moment, he let his guard down. And that attraction turned into infatuation. And then that infatuation morphed into lust, and the rest is history. Destroyed his character, destroyed his family, wreaked havoc on the nation of Israel. Now, let me just tell you something. Let me be honest with you. Satan knows when you're the most vulnerable. Satan knows exactly how to push your button. He knows exactly the bait that will entice you. So what you have to do is look at your life and say, what are those moments, what are those situations in my life when I am so vulnerable? Now let me tell you why this is helpful. When you know when you're vulnerable, it allows you to have a plan. I'll give you an example, and he said it was okay if I shared this, but there was a man that came to my church, and, or, or came to my office, and, and he, he's struggling with pornography on the internet. And he said, I, I, you know, when my wife would leave, and he, I, I, so we started talking about it. Are there certain times? He said, you know, when you think about it, there, there are certain times that I'm, I'm, I'm more vulnerable. He says, it seems like when there's no sports on worth watching. And my wife will leave, and I'll get a little bored, you know, and I don't mind is the devil's workshop, right? And before you know it, I'm on those sites, and then I feel dirty, and I feel guilty. So this is what he does. Every time his wife leaves him and he's home by himself, he gives her his computer and his phone, and she locks it up in the trunk of his car, her car until he comes back. And that's his way of saying, I've identified those vulnerable moments in my life, and I have a plan. Maybe it's when you travel. I never travel by myself. If Laura can't go with me, I take a staff member with me. In work, you can't always do that, but you better come up with a plan. If you know that it usually starts by hanging out in a bar, having dinner by yourself and a few drinks, 
you better have a plan. Or if you're in the room by yourself and it leads to one thing than another, you better have a plan. It could be as simple as, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to a movie. I'm going to meet somebody in that town and have dinner with them. I haven't caught up with them in a while. But you better have a plan. Plus, it allows you to fast forward and think about the potential consequences of your actions, the impact it's going to have on your spouse, your children, your reputation. Identify the times of vulnerability in your life. Fourth, and this is a big one, learn how to flee from tempting situations. As I said earlier, God created sex. So God isn't against sex. He gave us our sexuality as a gift. It's a positive thing. It's a good thing. God wants us to experience great sex. But if you were God, it's kind of a scary thought, but let's go down this road for a second. If you were God and you had created sex and now you sat back and you, you saw all the devastation caused by the people you loved abusing this gift that you gave them, all the children that grew up in confusion because of the abuse of this gift. All of the marriages that had been destroyed because of the abuse of this gift. All the hurt, the guilt, the shame that people experienced because of the abuse of this gift. I mean, you're God, you love the people you've created. You have a wonderful, incredible plan for their lives, but they keep missing it because of the abuse of this gift. What would you say to the people you created about this issue of sexual immorality? What would you say? Well, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Let me say that again. Flee from sexual immorality. Any questions? Yeah. Any clarification needed? You say, well, Mike, I'm not really sure what the word flee means. It means get the heck out of Dodge. That's what it means. Get out of the situation. That's what it means. In other words, when you find yourself in the danger zone, don't go, mm, wow, this, this might be dangerous. Don't do that. Don't sit around and analyze the situation. Flee. Get away from sexual immorality. Remember when Donnie talked about Joseph? Mrs. Potter tried to seduce him. Joseph rebuffed her. One day she grabbed his coat. He ran right out of his coat. Took off. She's left hanging his coat holding his coat. That's what it means to flee. Because of what's at stake, you need to flee. You need to run. And Paul gives us the reason in verse 18. All other sins a man commits are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now let's be honest. Paul is just saying what we already know. There is something different about sexual sin. I mean, we can sit around in our small groups and all, and we can pretend that, oh, yes, all sin's the same in God's eye, and it's, it's the same as stealing a pack of gum or jaywalking or cheating on the exam. But see, we, we all know there is something unique about sexual sin. I mean, when it comes to other sins, eventually we find forgiveness. We put it behind us. Sometimes we look back and think how stupid we were. We can even maybe laugh about it. I'm telling you, sexual sin is different. It affects you spiritually. It affects you emotionally. It affects you physically. It will stick to you like honey. And sometimes, some cases, it follows a person throughout their life. And you know what? It's, it's not that God doesn't forgive. We see all through the New Testament, Jesus forgiving people caught up in sexual immorality. That's not the issue. You know what it is? Sometimes it is just so hard for us to forgive ourselves. So if you were God, what would you say to those people you created when it came to sexual 
immorality. God just says, flee. Don't let it mesh up. Flee. Get away from it. Flee. Fifth, and this is for those of us who are married. But if you're single, you need to take notes because statistics say you're probably going to get married. So let me just give you this and then we'll unpack it. Maximize as a couple, a married couple, maximize your sexual relationship. I'm telling you, when sex is practiced between a husband and a wife, a wife the way God intended, it is absolutely incredible. But it's not just going to happen automatically. This, this sexual relationship between a husband and wife, it's got to be cultivated. It's got to be nurtured. You have to work really, really hard. Some of you know this. If you've been married for a while, you've got to work really, really hard at having a good sexual relationship. Laura and I were somewhere, and I don't even remember where we were, but it seems like maybe we were somewhere in Mexico. And we're surrounded by all these couples who had come for their honeymoon. And we're watching, and we're thinking, they're so cute. You know, they have no idea what it's really going to be like, right? <laughs> right? Remember those days when it just, oh, it's always going to be like this, right? Well, they don't realize that things like work and kids, finances, in-laws, whatever, has a way of just kind of snuffing out the flame. And so to keep the sexual fire burning between a husband and wife, I'm just telling you, you got, you're going to have to be intentional about it. You're going to have to schedule it in. Let me just ask you a question. For example, how many of you, raise your hand if you have preschoolers. Just raise your hand if you have preschoolers. Look at that. We should just have a moment of silence. <laughs> because it'll be the last moment of silence these people are going to have for a long, long time. I mean, because, see, if you have preschoolers, especially more than one, by definition, your life is out of control. I mean, you have diapers, you have dishes, you have trips, you know, to the bathroom. You got bottles and blankets and laundry and more trips to the bathroom and you know one time we were sitting around talking and one of our friends says wouldn't you love to be like 30 again I'm like what heck no right your life is out of control so if you fall in that demographic and I'm just using you if you want a vital sexual relationship you're gonna have to work for it you're gonna have to figure out how to schedule it into your life in fact if you want to know why there's no sizzle left in your marriage just look at your calendar on your phone or check your day timer we have time for work when duty calls, we have time for overtime. We make time for the kids. Some of you are enslaved to your children. You are? I read that the average family makes 13 commutes a day just to get their children everywhere that they need to go. You make time for your kids. When you have money, you find time to shop. You make sure you have time for that golf game. It is a high priority. But what kind of priority have you placed on your sexual relationship with your spouse? Now, I've told you before, and she's sitting here, I have an incredible wife. When I, when I married Laura, I married way over my head. And we just celebrated our 38th anniversary. But I got to tell you, for us to keep the fire burning, we figured out we have to spend time together. We have to make it a priority. We have to take trips. We have to get away. We, you know, we go on dates. And, and you know what? 38 years, we get dressed up to go on a date, just like if we're dating and we're not married. And I, I, I anticipate, I wonder what she's going to wear, what she's going to look like. We still flirt with each other. I mean, when we were young and had kids, we had to be creative, just like you. I can remember going to a hotel. You know, we didn't have any money, just like you guys. What, two, two queen beds? Us in one bed, kids in the other bed? You know what I figured out when I got old enough? Hey, did you guys see that really cool arcade downstairs? You want 20 bucks? Locked the door. <laughs> now, when they were adults, you know what they told us? We knew. <laughs> so yeah, we go down, throw up a little bit, then we would spend our 20 bucks, have a great time in the arcade, right? Right? But you know what? Let me ask you, what do you think's healthier? 
Kids knowing that their mom and dad are head over heels in love with each other, would, they, would you rather them learn it there or learn it from school? You tell me, TV, where would you like them to learn it? See, But you gotta do whatever it takes to keep the sizzle in the marriage. If it means wearing stilettos, wear stilettos. I mean that for the women, mainly. <laughs> but you know what I in this culture, you know what I'm saying? Some of you, the best thing you could do would be get a, I'm just, no, no, I'm just, be honest, get a gym membership. Why do we let ourselves go after we get married? Like, well, we got her now. Give me the donuts. You know, I'm good. <laughs> All right. It's funny, Laura, you know, women, they have that, that sixth sense. I cannot tell you how many times over our marriage, Laura's looked at a man who all of a sudden started dressing nicer, losing weight, getting in shape. Or a woman that's changed her hair, da da da. And Laura will say, I bet she's having an affair. And I'm like, what kind of dark world is your mind? And I cannot tell you how many times it came out she was right. Why do we let ourselves go? What you did to get her is what you do to keep her. See? See? I gotta tell you what Laura did for me to Valentine's. Some of you are getting real nervous right now, right? <laughs> Something I've been bugging her to do for 20 years, she would not do. Nah, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just kidding. She came home the Friday before Valentine's. She said, I got your Valentine's present. I'm like, I don't see any bags, you know. There's no new Corvette in the garage. She got a tattoo. That's hot. That's hot. Now, it's a little awkward having Donald Trump's picture on her back, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. See, that offends a lot of you a lot more than anything I've said today, so I just had to throw that in there. I'm just in a mood to irritate people. But. <clears throat> and I know what some of you think, well, great, I'm glad that works out for you, Mike, but we can't afford that kind of stuff. Let me tell you, you can't afford not to do that kind of stuff. Take out a loan if you have to. I mean, seriously. You can go to McDonald's, Outback, Taco Bell, it doesn't really matter, you know. I've heard young couples say, well, you know, our, our kids are kind of weird if we leave them with a babysitter. So we're going to wait till they're older. Let me tell you the problem with that. Do you know the fastest growing rate of divorces among families that have been married 20 to 25 years? Couples. You know why? That very reason. We're going to spend all our time on our children, then we're gone. Oh, who are you? And I don't even like you anymore. Fastest growing rate of divorce. You know why? It's because... Children are taking priority over marriage, right? So I've heard people say, you know, my kids are weird with the babysitter. Let me give, by the way, let me tell you something. If your kids are weird with a babysitter now, they're going to be weird their entire life, okay? So why wait, you know, just get a babysitter. Even better, leave them with the grandparents and just spend a romantic night at home alone. I'll give you a little secret. Your parents enjoy your kids a lot more than they enjoy you. I'll just tell you that right now. They will be happy to do it. They'll be happy to watch the kids. Now, this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and four times. Except perhaps by mutual consent and four times so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, now notice this, so that Satan will not, be tempted, will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, he says, married couples, you need to keep each other sexually satisfied so lust doesn't even have a place to take root. 
Amen that verse again, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. That's your new life first. Put it on the refrigerator, put it on the mirror, wherever you need it, right? And I've said this before. Laura, 38 years, Laura rarely says no to me. I mean, rarely, I mean, sometimes she'll say, don't block the TV. But rarely, rarely does she, you know, she just, you know. Now, somebody today said, well, Mike, you have a special wife. And I do. But see, part of it's wisdom and learning when not to ask. I mean, you, you sense some things after you've been 38 years. There's certain times like, this just is not the right time, right? So there's a little bit of wisdom here. And it's okay to say no. But if you say no, say no with an appointment. Not tonight, honey, but tomorrow night. Not tonight, honey, but this weekend. 2025 would not be an acceptable response, right? But I want you to understand this. We are to satisfy our mates sexually. In fact, we're to keep each other so satisfied that it takes away the lure of lust. Now, I know because I do a lot of counseling. I'm talking to some of you like, sex, are you kidding me? That is so far off the radar screen. You better get it back on the radar screen. Paul had a very specific reason for giving 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. And the best way I know to do it, they say, you know what, the best way to make a habit is to do the same thing every day for three weeks. I challenge you, I'm serious. I'm serious. Figure out a way to have sex every day for three weeks. It, it's not that funny. <laughs> That's not your wife, is it? She's laughing. I... First of all, start by sitting right next to each other. She's cackling. We did this a couple of years ago, and there was a couple walked in, and, and she walked in, the wife, she looked at me, she, she got the head going. She said, Pastor Mike, I am hating you right now. She said, we're at 14 days in to 21, and he's behind her. <laughs> Pastor Mike, I'm loving you right now, and it works. Let me give you the Ten Commandments to marital commitment, and then we're done. Thou shalt, not, thou shalt have no other human relationships before your spouse, including your kids. Second, remember the marriage bed and keep it hot. Third, thou shalt honor your anniversary and special days so that your life may be long on the earth. <laughs> Four, thou shalt not take the covenant of marriage in vain by being apathetic. Some of you are just existing. Five, thou shalt not ride in a car alone with any member of the opposite sex. That is a fireable, uh, that's, that, that's, that's a fireable offense on my staff. You can't even ride from this campus up to crossroads in the car with someone of the, same, of the opposite sex. Thou shalt not eat alone with any member of the opposite sex. Thou shalt not have any private meeting with any member of the opposite sex. Thou shalt, even our staff, we keep our doors open. We meet in the fireside room. We don't counsel before or after office hours. We obey these rules. Thou shalt not share the intimate details of your marriage with any member of the opposite sex. Suicide. Thou shalt not watch, read, or expose yourself to stuff that you shouldn't be exposed to. And thou shalt remember the implications of breaking any of these commandments. Why do you say we put a little bit of dignity back into the church, the body of Christ, by the way we handle our sexuality? And what do you say we draw the line in the sand and say, God, from here on out, we're going to do every area of our life in accordance with your wishes and your desire, including our sexuality.
Let's pray together. Let's just bow for a second. Let me just ask you before I pray, where are you this weekend? Maybe some of you, you've just never made a commitment to give your sexuality to God. And maybe this is the weekend where you finally say, God, I've made this commitment in my heart and my mind to do sex your way. If you've never made that commitment, I can tell you that's where it starts. Some of you right now, you're already living in those areas of sexual immorality outside the bonds of a husband and a wife in a committed marriage relationship. I just want you to understand, if that's where you are, God can change you. He can transform your life today. I mean, all you have to do is read the Gospels and you will see that Jesus showed all kinds of compassion for people that were involved in sexual sin. There was a woman at the well who'd been married five times and Jesus said, yeah, the guy you're living with now is not even your husband. John chapter eight, there was the woman that was caught in adultery. There was Mary Magdalene. Many people think she was a prostitute. Over and over you find Jesus saying, I give you grace, I give you forgiveness, I give you new life. But then he would say this, Now go and sin no more. Change your lifestyle. Put it in line with what I've called you to. Don't care where you've been. Don't care who you've been involved with. I'm telling you, Jesus is saying, if you'll come to me and confess it, come clean, I'll forgive you. You're already forgiven. But you gotta get your act together. Maybe you're here and your marriage has been ripped apart uh, by adultery. And this is what I want you to know. I want you to know that even with all the hurt and the turmoil and confusion, God can restore, uh, he can heal your marriage, he can use it for his glory. I tell young couples all the time, marriage isn't based on love. We go in and out of love all the time. If you stay married long enough, it's based on commitment. Commitment you made to God, commitment you made to each other. And it's gonna take some time and it's gonna take some counseling and and some honest communication, but I've seen God work miracles time and time again. He'll take that mess, I'm telling you, he will turn it into something incredibly beautiful for his glory. In fact, maybe by just addressing this issue, it will lead you to finally experience the marriage that you've always dreamed of. But this is what I want you to hear. There's healing, there's restoration. But you gotta commit to doing it God's way. Father, thank you. And I pray right now for those who've been coloring outside the lines that they would understand that you're God. No matter how long they've been away, no no matter how long they've been coloring outside the lines, no matter what they've been up to, that you're a God who says, please come back home. And I'll welcome you. And I'll clean you up. And I'll love you. And we'll go from here. May that be our message today. In your name we pray, amen.